This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Isabel Allende, welcome back to Better Reading. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, I think the last time we spoke, I came to see you in California. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> I took the ferry across, but I ended up getting off at the wrong station. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, she needs no introduction. Isabel Allende, born in Peru and raised in Chile. Isabel is the author of a number of best-selling and critically acclaimed books, including Violetta, A Long Petal of the Sea, The House of Spirits, Of Love and Shadows, Eva Luna and Paula. Her books have been translated into more than 42 languages and have sold more than 77 million copies worldwide. Her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name, tells the tale of two unforgettable characters, both in search of family and home. It is both a testament to the sacrifices that parents make and a love letter to the children who survive the most unfathomable dangers and never stop dreaming. I mean, I've got to tell you, Isabel, you made a a grown woman cry. I wept a lot reading this book because I always think as a human race, we're going to get better, but we don't. No, we do. We do. do. Yes. Uh, Humanity evolves but the curve of evolution is not a straight line. Mm. We have backlashes. We we repeat some errors. I, I figure it like a spiral. We, we seem to be walking in circles, but really in every turn, we learn something. And the world is much better today than it was when I was born. Mm. I was born in the middle of the Holocaust, mm. uh, during when the time of the atomic bombs, before human rights, before feminism, before everything that we today take for granted. Mm. So, uh, and we we are evolving. So I am not pessimistic. Well, I'm glad you're not. And that's made me feel a whole lot better because, you know, I think, and when I was reading it, this didn't leave me, that family separation policy that so many South Americans endured and locking up children in cages was so recent and so barbaric. And I know you touch on that in your book. Yeah, but it's not the first time that it happens. The book starts with a a Jewish child separated from his mother because the mother makes a horrible choice of sending him away to save him from the Nazis. And this kid will grow up with a hole in the heart and will never see his family again. And he will live a whole life until he's 86 And then he meets a little girl who is going through the same thing. And his heart breaks for her Mm. because he remembers what he lived. Now, in the United States, we have separated children in times of slavery to sell them away. Yeah, we have. Sell them away. 
we have separated indigenous children to send them to horrific Christian boarding schools. Uh, in Australia, they've done the same. Uh, so this is not only in the United States or in Nazi Germany, it happens. Mm. And it's always brutal. Mm. The book um, obviously um, explores the themes of um, parents and children and the relationship between child and mother. My mother died recently. Well, it's about a year ago now. And I found myself last weekend, we were at her house because we'd sold it and we were clearing it. And it was emotional, without a doubt. She died at 83. But do you know, the whole family was there and there were so many children. I think she has 12 great-grandchildren, right, ranging from 14 to three months. And I was sitting there and I was looking. I was feeling sad. Of course I was because it was the family home. But what made me feel so hopeful and happy was seeing that life goes on, you know, that this generation of children, they're our future. Exactly. Mm. As you say, life continues. Mm. For some people, it will never be normal. And I think that most of those children who were separated at the border, we still have a thousand kids that have Mm. not been able to reunite with the parents because they deported the parents and they never thought of reunification. Mm. These kids are lost in the system. I think they will grow up with a a sense of emptiness Mm. and the trauma will never leave them. What made you write it at this point in your career? Well, of course, the the policy of separating children and the horrific scenes that we saw on television and in the press. Also, I have a foundation, and my foundation works with organizations and programs in the border where we support the people who are who are working in the field to help these kids. So we know many cases. We see the faces. We know the names. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anita is inspired in, in a little girl called Juliana. So um, I didn't have to invent the circumstances, just research. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of help because I, I know many people who are doing this work. Mm-hmm. It's so important. Uh, did you see, I mean, you would have seen this, that recent tragic plane crash in Colombia where the parent, the mother died and the four children, I mean, ranging from, oh, was it 10 to 1 or whatever, and they mm-hmm. survived for four, 40 days. Yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, I, I, I'm getting messages from people in Colombia asking me to write the story. Uh, but I think that, I think that the, uh, Colombia has such great writers that uh, a Colombian writer will, would understand the, the the culture and everything much better than me. Mm. Do you think that children in adverse situations, like I feel like, you know, if you looked at any of the children that I know, I, I don't know how they would have navigated 40 days in a jungle, but also, you know, navigated a life on a train without your mother and travelling. And so there's a child of a certain age that in in Western culture that we mollycoddle, that they can't even walk to the train station by themselves, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. And then there's another generation of children out there that are so self-sufficient and in a way so resilient too. Yeah. You never know how strong you are until you're tested. Mm-hmm. And these children are tested all the time. Mm-hmm. So they are, they are strong and resilient and resourceful. Mm. In the case of the kids in Colombia, they were indigenous children. Mm. They knew the environment. And uh, one of the, I mean, the father of two of them was, because they have different fathers. Uh, The father of one of them said that the jungle is a friend if you know how to 
how to navigate it. Mm. And maybe that's how the world is, that if we know how to navigate the bad circumstances, we can make friends with that. Mm. Now, tell me, I know we speak about you writing a lot. Actually, I heard you on a podcast recently. I was uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Isn't she wonderful? She's so funny and wise. I enjoyed that podcast. So much. It was called Wiser Than Me. And I I don't know how I happened across it. And I was driving somewhere and I started with Jane Fonda. I think that was the first one. And then you came on and I was surprised because I, you know, I hadn't seen you on the list. And, you know, that's turned out to be my favorite. And I've sent it (laughs) to so many people, that link. But I thought you were very candid in every aspect of your life. I don't have secrets, Sherry. I don't. My life is an open book. My mother used to say that that made me very vulnerable. And I would reply that it is not uh, what you tell what makes you vulnerable, but the secrets you keep. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about looking back at the body of your career. Like, you know, I mean, I one of the things you touched on in that podcast was, you know, growing up and your relationship with your mother and how you were a feminist at the age of, what was it, five or four? I was born a feminist. <laughs> you yeah. were born a feminist. You made you started off as a journalist too, didn't you? So talk to me about when you reflect on the work, the body of work that you do, what do you think about that? Because, you know, I'm thinking about sometimes, and, you know, I'm beyond applying for jobs, but when you apply for a job, let's say, and you have to put your CV together, you look at it, very often, and that happened to me a few years back, and you think, oh, gosh, have I done that much? Have I achieved that much? You know, talk to me about what you think about when you look at your body of work. When I, I think that most of the stuff happened by chance, mm-hmm. but I've been incredibly lucky. And uh, I, I have had a rich life in every sense with sorrow and joy and love and abandonment and everything, mm-hmm. everything, life and death. But I have also I have also been very lucky with my books, and it I, it wasn't planned. I never said to myself, "I want to be a writer." It it sounded so ambitious, so arrogant. Only men with mustache were were writers in Latin America, and mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right> here <laughs> people like me by by no means. So I look back, and when I read, for example, in my website, and I don't I don't I didn't create my website. But the people who did, and and there's a summary at the beginning with 60 international awards, 13 honorary degrees, and and so forth. And I look at that, and it isn't me in a way. I I don't I I don't own it. Mm-hmm. I live a day at a time, and I'm always looking at the project that I am working in. So I forget the past. Uh, if you ask me anything about Violeta today, I don't remember the characters because I'm into something else. And I know that I will forget the, the wind knows my name by December. So that, that's how my life is. It's always like like jumping around. Mm. Mm, I think so too. I, you know, and that's kind of living in the moment, isn't it? You know, if you pull yourself out and you look at yourself from above, I often think, oh, uh, how did I get here? Do I deserve to be here? And, you know, that's a mild, well, it's probably not mild for me, but I have the imposter syndrome. You know, I've definitely got it. You don't? don't No. Everything I I have done uh, is work and discipline and and I deserve it. I've never felt. Absolutely. I've never felt that that I am taking somebody else's place or that I don't deserve it, Mm. which is a very 
female thing. We are trained to think that we don't deserve anything. Mm-hmm. I often hear um, labels, like people ask me when I'm, you know, if I've podcasted, say, with somebody like you or, or whoever I'm talking to, and if it's women, they will always ask me, oh, was she difficult, right? Whereas if it's men, <laughs> they don't ask the same questions. It's a very yeah. different approach. Yeah, the other thing is that, In every interview, I am asked about my sex life because people can't believe that at 80, you still would have any desire. Would they ever ask that question to a male author? Never. Never. No, because we assume that they're still having sex, whereas with women, we always question it. I don't feel disrespected at all, and I'm willing to talk because I think we we should have a conversation, a a national international conversation about this. Yeah, yeah. Other issues... about aging. Mm. Well, I thought you were really candid when you were talking to Julia because you were talking about um, microdosing. Is that right? Not microdosing, taking marijuana for sex. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was very funny because then after after the podcast, she said, can you send me some? And I'm crying to send it by mail. (laughs) That's right. You don't want to be arrested. But you know uh, what? In California, you can find it everywhere. So I know because you know, as you know, I spend a lot of time in San Francisco, and certainly, you know, when you walk along the mission, yeah, yeah, every yeah. second shot. You know what? I just was in New York, and the the whole city smells of marijuana everywhere. Yeah. Wow. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So I want to go back and and remind me, and I know you probably talked to me about this, but remind me of the transition moving from being a nonfiction um, writer, a journalist, to fiction, and why at the time that you thought that that was the direction you wanted to go in. It didn't happen as a plan. Uh, I was a journalist and a very happy one, and I would still be a journalist, or probably retired by now, in Chile, but the military coup forced me out of my country. In Venezuela, I couldn't find a job as a journalist. None of the things that I had done before were of any importance in Venezuela. I had no curriculum vita there. I was just nobody. Mm. And, uh, uh, and that happens often in exile, that, that all the crutches that sustained you before are lost. Uh, and you have to start from scratch in whatever thing you can find. So I did all kinds of odd jobs for years until I found a job administering a school. And it was in the same uh, in the same building, 
the grammar school in the morning and high, high school in the afternoon. So I did 12, uh, my shifts were 12 hours, but the weekends were free and, and we had a lot of vacation as kids too. So that helped. And I didn't become a writer until many years later. I worked in that school at least four years and a half before I wrote The House of the Spirits. Mm. And that happened almost by chance. I, I started as a letter to my grandfather who was dying in Chile. And then I kept on writing and, and it turned out to be 560 pages on the kitchen counter. Mm. That was a book. Mm. How did you get it published? Well, my mom thought, okay, this is a novel. Let's offer it to some editor. She had some she knew some people in Buenos Aires because she, she and my stepfather had been ambassadors in Buenos Aires and um, nobody wanted to read it. And so a year went by or, or a few months. And then somebody told me about the best agent for literature, for Latin American literature, who was Carmen Balcells in Barcelona. And I found the address and sent her the manuscript. And, and she called me a month later and said, I've read your book. It's a good book, but everybody can write a good first book because you put there everything you are, everything you think, everything you have experienced or you dream of. The writer is proven on the second book and the others that follow. Uh, but I'm going to have this book published. And she found the editor, she found the publishing house and very quickly, the book was published in August of the next year. And um, then there was the, the Frankfurt Fair is in, in October. And she offered the book to some, to all the Latin America, I mean, to all the European publishers. And it got translated to every single language immediately. Mm. So the, 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 the boom that, that that book experience is unheard of. Mm. How did you deal with that at the time? I didn't because I was living in Venezuela. I wasn't aware of it until uh, much later. And uh, and by then I was writing the second book to prove to my agent, Carmen, that, that I could be a writer. Mm. I've heard you talk about your approach to work. And I, I remember seeing you at the Adelaide Writers' Festival years and years ago. Oh, um, yeah, I was in that audience. And I, I think somebody asked you, you know, um, uh, when do you write or how do you get inspired to write? And you said, and, and this isn't verbatim, but I think you said something like, oh, easy. I wake up and I go to my desk at nine and I finish at five. That's my inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? And is it still right? It's right, but I don't finish at five, usually much later. Uh, but now I give myself time to exercise every day, which I didn't before, and I regret it mm. because my life has changed since I exercised. And I think that that is the cause for my the way I feel as an old person because I feel better today than when I was 50. Mm. Mm. So now what do you do? You do? What's your daily routine? How does that look? I get up around half past five because the day is too short for me anyhow. Mm. And uh, I have a cup of coffee a shower, and uh, I walk the dogs a little bit, not much, because the, the, the long walk comes afterward. And then I exercise. And then I open my computer, and usually I have a lot of emails uh, that I have to answer. And I always answer the first message from every person that writes to me, but only the first message. Hmm. But that's a lot of work. So I do hmm. that first to get it out of the way. And then I start my day of writing 
or researching or whatever I'm doing. Hmm. There are periods in which I can't do that because I'm promoting a book. This right now is one of those times when I have to put the the project I'm working on aside in order to focus on the promotion of the book. And then this stops very quickly. And then I can go back to the book. Mm. So do you write in a linear fashion? Do you have like a beginning and an end? Or is it that you write different? Oh, you do. Okay. Usually I, I start with an idea and I develop it slowly. I don't have a script. I make a lot of mistakes and, and hit dead ends and I have to go back and come back, change directions. But the characters lead me. Once the characters have a personality, a full personality, they will do stuff and they will force me to, to follow the, mm. to follow them, to be consistent with their lives and their character and, and their personalities. Mm. Yeah, so it's a bit, my, my work is very character driven. Mm. Do you know, I was thinking about that too, because as you know, you know, we're in an industry where we like to categorize everything. So, you know, we need to know whether it's crime fiction or we need to know if it's romance or whatever, but your work is not that it's never really been in a genre. And I was, when I was walking my dog this morning and thinking about you, I thought it's because you actually just write about human experiences and that's not. I write about relationships and Mm. about emotions and there are themes that that I keep repeating and repeating that are universal: mm-hmm. death, love, loyalty, justice, uh, violence, family. Everybody feels that the same way. So mm-hmm. maybe that's why my books translate well, because it's it's not about style; it's about story. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they often say this, and you would have heard this, you know, oh, well, you know, Americans won't read a book set in, I'm just making this up, but for example, you know, Americans don't like to read a book set in Australia or uh, Australians don't like to read a book set somewhere else. But that's actually not true. What is true is that they don't like to read translation. That has changed dramatically in the last, I would say, the last 10 years. Uh, Because when, also, the same with movies, that in America, they, they show any foreign movie in, in, in clubs, in cinema clubs, because the, 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 the big, the, the normal population, the, as they call the silent majority, can't read subtitles. That has changed also. That and, and books in translation. Uh, but don't you think that yours are so story driven that people, I, I think there are so many people that would read your books that don't even think about whether it's translated or not. At least in English, that's the case. I don't know in other languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I just want to, I know we're we're kind of running out of time. I want to talk about when I was listening to you on the Julia um, uh, podcast, Wiser Than Me, as I said, uh, there was a couple of women there. um, And some of the questions that she asked related to being a parent and being a mother, and Jane Fonda in particular talked about the fact that she felt that she was a bad mother. You know, mm-hmm. what do you think about that? What do you think about, because uh, I uh, I thought about that a lot when I heard that comment and I thought that that's something really hard to say out loud. But is it that everybody does the best they know? There is all these myths about how great motherhood is. Mm-hmm. It isn't great for everybody to begin with. Mm-hmm. If you ask me what kind of mother I was, my son will say mild neglect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> and, and he says it was great because that allowed him a lot of freedom and to fend for himself. We were talking about kids that become very resilient. Mm. I was not a helicopter parent watching my kids closely. I was just very loving and uh, and and I enjoyed them, but I didn't dedicate my life to them. I always worked. Sometimes I was juggling two or three jobs simultaneously. I never went to a parent meeting in the school. I didn't go to the soccer games and that didn't traumatize my ch- my children. So uh, I feel that I was a normal mother and I don't feel guilty about anything except the fact that I fell in love with a guy at one point in my life and I abandoned them for a month and I followed the guy thinking that I could bring my children with me. And when I realized I couldn't, I went back mm. to my husband. Mm. That is something I regret to this day because I hurt my children in a terrible way. Mm. It's not a perfect art being a parent. Or being a child for that matter, being being a son or a daughter. We do the best we can sometimes. Mm. And sometimes mm. we just can't do that either. Mm. All right. Now, dare I ask, are you working on something else? Yeah, I'm always working on something. Uh, this time uh, I am like in half of the first draft of another novel. And I say first draft because I don't I don't know what I'm writing until I print it. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I work on the computer and when I have a final story, when the story is finished, I print it for the first time. And when I can read it in paper, I know what it is about. Before, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a blur. Mm. I guess I, it's not. Yeah, yeah, no, I can get that too. And I guess too, when you've got got it on a computer, it's still very malleable. You know, you can move. Yeah, you are moving. You are moving everything around. You know, today I was asking another interview, what has been the what is the difference between uh, writing when you began your career and now? What what has made the big difference? And I said the computer, because Mm -hmm. before I would write on a typewriter with no copies. In order to make to correct something, you would paint the page with with something called Tipex or Typex, mm. and and wait until it dried, and then you would put it back in the typewriter, and you had to put in that space another sentence or another word with the same number of letters, otherwise mm. it wouldn't fit. You cut and paste was cut with scissors and paste with scotch tape. Mm. So when the computer was invented and and I could move things around and and, and I had to make as many copies as I wanted, that changed my life. I can imagine. All right, we're out of time, lovely. Always a pleasure chatting with you. And hopefully next time I'll be over there and I can come and talk to you in person. Okay, do do that. (laughs) You're welcome, always. (laughs) Isabella Yandi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sherry. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, 
We're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.